Welcome, everyone. You are listening to Forged in Fire, where we explore how LGBTQ plus leaders develop their leadership superpowers. You'll hear from guests as they share how they navigated their journey through adverse and crucible experiences to develop into amazing leaders. Forged in Fire is hosted by Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram and Dr. Liz Cavallaro. Hi, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Bree Fram. I'm an astronautical engineer in the United States Space Force and one of the senior transgender officers in the military. I'm a passionate advocate for the value inclusion brings to organizations. And I'm Dr. Liz Cavallaro. I'm an adult development scholar and associate professor at the U.S. Naval War College. I'm also an experienced researcher, interviewer, leader development practitioner, and professional executive coach. Please join us as we discover the inspiring stories of how LGBTQ leaders are forged. Welcome to another episode of Forged in Fire. We are thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Joel A. Davis-Brown. Dr. Brown is the Chief Visionary Officer of Numos LLC, a management consulting and coaching firm based in San Francisco and Nairobi, specializing in organizational strategy and culture, transformational leadership, global inclusion, executive coaching, conflict resolution, and strategic storytelling. Hold on, there's way more, because Joel is an adjunct professor at the IESEG School of Management in Paris and Lille, France, where he teaches storytelling for leaders and story listening. And as a change agent, he works strategically to cultivate innovative, creative, and adaptive environments where the cultural genius of everyone can be harnessed and leveraged successfully. He's a graduate of the University of Minnesota, the Virginia School of Law, and received a doctorate in educational leadership from St. Mary's College in 2018. He also received an executive degree in design thinking, peace education, and global citizenship from La Universidad de La Paz in Costa Rica. He's a nationally recognized spoken word artist in the United States, and in what brought him to our attention, the author of The Souls of Queer Folk, How Understanding LGBTQ Cultural Values Can Transform Your Leadership Practice. Joel, thank you so much for joining us today. We are thrilled to have you. Well, and thank you for reading that. I hope you still have your breath. <laughs> That's a lot. We need to edit that, um, have my publicist edit that bio. So it's a pleasure to be here with you both. Well, we want to dive into so much of the work that you've done, but with the focus of our show really being on how you became you and how queer leaders are formed, we kind of want to split the conversation in two parts, where first we'll dive into your story, and then a little bit into the book. But I did want to start off with a quote that I, I lifted from the book that I think really kicks in to the story. And you wrote about LGBTQ folks that we have lifted as we have climbed. We have danced as we have walked. We have persevered though we have stumbled. Our example is a beautiful case study of living humanly of how to feed and nurture the soul by trusting your instincts and following the path of your cultural pedigree. And yet we have provided a blueprint for the world of how to live generatively and intentionally. Our faith in ourselves has made us who we are and helped remake the world. And in another section, you wrote that it is by growing internally that we grow immeasurably. We wanna start with your internal growth and how you found faith in yourself in relation to being LGBTQ. Can you kick us off by describing your journey of coming out to yourself? 
Yes, first of all, thank you. And boy, let me think back on this. What is that journey like? So I'm going to share a little bit of a story that will take us back to Minneapolis. So let's think back to Minneapolis, let's say May 17th, 1995. My father had come to visit and we were sitting at what I believe was the uh, Baker Square on University Avenue. And my dad said, hey, what's up? What's going on? And I said, well, Dad, I'm gay. So my dad said, can you pass the salt and pepper for, I need some more seasoning for the eggs. And then that afternoon, we were walking through Dinky Town, which is, for those of us, those of you who are not familiar with the University of Minnesota campus, it's kind of a student area. It got a little bit of a funky vibe to it. And my dad said, you seem a little quiet. What's wrong? And I said, oh, Dad, I'm gay. And he said, well, let's go get some ice cream. It's a nice sunny day. So then... By that afternoon, late that afternoon, my dad said, you know, son, I just keep getting the sense that something's bothering you. Do you want to talk about it? And I said, Dad, for the last time, I'm gay. And at that point, it hit him. And we got into a verbal battle. And we were at my dormitory. And at some point, I decided I was going to leave. Uh, I was armed and ready to say and to debate whatever he wanted to debate, but there's a point where you just want your father to be your father or your parent to be your parent. And as I left the room and grabbed my coat, my father yelled after me, go do whatever it is you all do. I'll never forget that moment because as I walked across the Washington Avenue Bridge, what I kept thinking about was, what is it that we do that makes people so afraid of who we are? And it was that question that led me to where we are today. Obviously, there have been twists and turns, and there have been a number of different adventures along my pathway. But all of my work, if you want to call that, has been supported by the unyielding belief that who we are as queer people um, is something beautiful, wonderful, and uh, unfathomable for most people. And that we need to do whatever we can, that I need to do whatever we can to make sure that our light, our brilliance, and our wisdom don't get extinguished. What that has meant over those years is that sometimes people question what, you know, what exactly who we are. They want to denigrate us. But I have just remained faithful to this question, this idea that we are more than the sum of what people make us out to be. And that's how I got to where I am today. So clearly it was early on that you were thinking about how people would react, what it was that they were afraid of. You you knew that that was something that you were going to face. And so once then you were out, um, what were some of the biggest hurdles that you faced in embracing that authenticity publicly? I think some of the biggest hurdles were what we're dealing with right now. I mean, and what I mean by that is we're living in a climate right now that's not new. We're living in a climate now where people are trying to erase our history. They're trying to stigmatize who we are, and they're trying to make us seem like we're a dangerous element. So that is not new or novel. And I would hazard to guess it will continue at some point in the future. So for me, the biggest hurdles were, number one, being able to embrace myself and to embrace all of myself and not feeling as though I could be um, black here, but not um, fully queer or that I could be queer here and not fully black. 
there's an intersectional lens that was really important. I think it was also important for me to just go back and read the history, to learn more about who we were, to dig and I like to use the word excavate because when you're dealing with minoritized populations, we have to excavate to find stories of who we are in our own words, in our own language. And as I learned more about who we are, whether it's, you know, from people like a Langston Hughes or a Bessie Smith or a Bayard Rustin or looking at, you know, the progenitors of the Harlem Renaissance, you start to realize we've been here for quite some time. We have done some pretty powerful things. And that beauty, power, and wisdom also lies within me. So it gave me license and it gave me permission to be that. And as a Black kid, some of that stuff was already present. I had family members and a strong mama who would say, you need to learn about us and hear the things that we've done. But that road and those stories were not always as available as a queer young person. And so those are the things that helped me to really embrace myself and then also just uh, connecting with the community. So I was part of the, I forget what it was called at this point, the LGBTQ or the Christian Union or a group at the University of Minnesota. And also just realizing there were people just like me who were not caricatures, we weren't stereotypes, we were folks who we were different, we didn't mind being different and weird. And it was just nice to have other people who could affirm you or the word I like to use or the phrase is hold space to say, this is who you are. We know and see who you are, the truth and power of who you are. We're not going to let you forget that. So those several things, I think, really helped me to embrace who I was and to continue to take steps forward in my queer identity to the point where now, um, you know, it's I'm very proud and I don't shy away from telling anybody who I am or I don't shy away from that part of who my identity in a lot of the work that you've done, the focus is really on storytelling. So you teach it and you practice it in many forms. Was there something in your early background, your development, your exposure to the queer community that helped you recognize the power of storytelling and telling your story in particular? Does it help you form connections? I think, honestly, I mean, from a storyteller standpoint, I've always, it's always been there. Like, I don't know a time when I wasn't thinking about poetry and storytelling, but I do think the what queerness has helped me do is just not to stigmatize it. Not to think that this was something that was, and I'm just using the language of um, some of my peers when I was younger. Oh, that's the girly thing to do. Or that's the, I'm not going to use the F word, but that's that thing to do. And as I became more, I didn't quite know how to frame or describe my weirdness. But as I became more aware, I was like, ah, that's what it is. It's this queer thing that tells me that, yeah, I can be into sports, but I don't have to be engaged in this toxic masculinity. But I can also, you know, wear clothes differently. I can also engage in different types of art. And that's okay. In fact, it's preferable, right? So that's where I think the queer factor came in. And then I think just the embrace and the beauty of it is just something that's spiritually given. I think we all have a creative element to us that's been given to us um, from the universe. But recognizing the beauty of such is what I think is, you know, makes the difference between those of us who are happy and successful and fulfilled and those of us who are not. So I think just having that validation to say, yeah, you like art, you like poetry, you like these types of things, and it's okay. In fact, do more of it. Keep doing it. And so it gave me a lot of joy to kind of just dig in. And then at some point, quite frankly, the poetry saved me 
because when I came out, I didn't have anybody to talk to. At least I didn't think I did. So it was a pen in the paper that saved me that became my best friends that allowed me to talk about this disquieting belief of being a queer person in the world. And I felt like I had anybody who could um, understand me. So art also helped me to be here right now because it gave me that outlet that I didn't think I had. So Joel, that story helps shed some light on that fact that you prefer to be known as a self-identified nerd, jock, mute. (laughs) (laughs) And I found that description really interesting in that the work that you do now is looking at the way in which queer leadership links to transformational leadership. And I want to talk a little bit about the book, but before that, what was it in your own story and your own experiences and journey in this space that started you looking at these qualities, these characteristics, these self-identified pieces as qualities and values that are important for leadership and that can be transformational? I think it was kind of a late realization, right? I mean, it's, I think it's always been important and I've always preached, um, not in the evangelical sense, but I've always said that it's important for everybody to be the best version of themselves. You can't be anybody else. So you may as well be the person, the best version of yourself that can deliver and contribute in the unique way to the world around you. So that's always been consistent. I think what the last, I would say, 10, 15, 20 years uh, have really been kind of surreal, uh, at least to me they've been, uh, whether they're talking about Gore v. Bush. Remember that? Gore v. Bush to right now where we are with what's happening in the Ukraine, climate change, inflation, the economy spiraling, et cetera, et cetera, and covid can't forget about COVID, right? And what I, so I I remember during COVID people saying to me, how are we going to survive? How are we going to get through this? And a lot of the people I spoke to in the queer community were not shook. And I'm using uh, some slang there. So they were not um, stressed. And the reason why is because as many people said to me and I said to other people, we've been through this stuff before. We know what this is like. We know how to survive a pandemic. We know how to survive um, just the topsy-turvy world that we live in. And in fact, not only have we learned how to survive, we've thrived in it. And so then as I kind of did like this meta, because I said I'm a nerd, so when I did this meta thing of, hmm, there's something there, I just said to myself, if I were just, if I weren't a member of the community, I would want to know what is it that this group has that's allowing them to operate with this calm, this peace, this assuredness, and to be grounded and rooted in what they do, even while everything seems to be upside down. And that's our community. We've always had to deal with these circumstances and situations in one form or another, right? Uh, We may not have had COVID, but we had other things and we may not have had um, DeSantis, but we had Anita Bryant and we've had others throughout the course of history. So, and we've been able to still say, yeah, you know, I'm not going to be slowed down by what you do. I'm not going to be deterred. And that's what I think led me to realize that we have something I think the world needs in a great amount because the world right now, and has always been, frankly, I think if we, any of us who come from minoritized populations, We've always felt like we're in this world that's unpredictable and volatile and complex. 
It's just not that the rest of the world is catching up. And what we still emulate, what we symbolize, what we embody, I think is what the world needs. And it just is like my queer nerdiness just put two and two together and said, I think we should talk about this on a grander scale. Yeah, we could certainly talk about the VUCA world all day. And uh, amazing to think that that term was coined just under 40 years ago and how much that has all accelerated since then in so many different ways. Uh, but the adaptability of LGBTQ folks through it is incredible. I think a lot of that potentially comes from our ability to take and hold multiple perspectives. And in so many different ways, LGBTQ people almost come naturally with multiple identities. And particularly for queer people of color, there's another layer added on top of that. Now, when you talked earlier about not knowing that you might have had anyone to talk to when you came out and the pen and paper kind of became that resource. Were there different perspectives you held on that through the identities that you held? Was it a concern that a certain community might not accept you? Or were there different aspects of your identity playing into that thought process that maybe the world isn't ready for me? And then what would it take for the world to be ready for you? I'm going to respond to what you just said, and then we'll go backwards. Uh, I just got to a place where I realized the world may never be ready for me, but I'm ready for me. I'm ready for myself, right? The so there were the competing narratives and streams were number one. You know, in parts of the black community, there was this idea that gayness was a white disease or queerness was a white disease, and so if you're queer, that means you must be white. That's only something that white people do. Um, while I would go into mainstream queer circles, there was this attitude that, you know, if you were black, that somehow you were, um, not that somehow you were black, but if you were black, you were, um, you just weren't welcome. You were, you were cute. You were unique. There was like this unicorn aspect to you, but there's, there wasn't a strong effort to integrate. And a lot of what were deemed to be queer norms were coming from a Euro, Eurocentric perspective. And so that made it difficult. There was my own uh, thought process around not having role models to know that we excel, excel and exist in every field, if you were. So thinking that, for example, if you're into hip hop, that you can't be queer, that if you're into sports, that you can't be queer. Uh, we know that's just not true. And so it was just all those different things. Right. And what it really comes down to is simply not having good narratives, good stories, a multitude of stories that help you to understand that yeah, these pair, these boxes and these um, myopic narratives are not serving anyone. And the fact they they never have, and they they go against the grain of what we know to be history of the queer community. So as I started to dig a little bit more, and I would love to say that there was one shining moment, but it's just been a series of moments, a series of steps that have allowed me to get to the place where I realize, oh, okay, what I thought was a community is really not what I thought to be, and what I thought about myself. Um, also had to grow and evolve as well. And I'm so glad I did. And so part of the reason why this book is so important to me is because I also am hoping, trusting that some young queer person around the world will also be able to shorten that time period, maybe not have to go through as many steps, maybe not have to go through and suffer through as much confusion to say, I see myself, I know I belong, and I can be queer in my own way and still have a place within the community. And that's a large part of what led me to write the book. 
So in the book, you use transformational leadership as a model to frame queer leadership. And your research actually pointed to the overlap of certain queer cultural values and the values that we see in good leaders, in particular transformational leaders. What was it that you found that that fit within this model of transportation, transformational leadership or, or expanded upon it in that queer leadership space? Everything. Um, when you look at what people are seeking from their leaders, they're looking for authenticity. They're looking for people who are not just logical, rational thinkers, but also are creative. They want people who have sensory perception and, and can trust their intuition. They're not just going by uh, facts and what they read on the page. The fact of having some social consciousness uh, is important. So the list goes on and on. There was nothing that I came across in my research, nothing that we uncovered that I didn't say to myself, just based on my knowledge as a, a coach, as an organizational development consultant, and as someone who's just worked in a number of different places um, with our clients, that what we naturally possess, what we champion, is what people in business need. Uh, we know that the type of leadership that has been facilitated in a lot of the organizations, and not just organizations, but just in the world, because I want to make sure that we look at leadership broadly. It's not just a, a workplace thing. It's just not working. Uh, we've seen the narcissistic type of leadership. Uh, I don't need to name any names, but we know uh, who some of those people are from the last, I would say, seven years. We've seen ego-driven leadership, top-down leadership, uh, militaristic leadership, hierarchical leadership, uh, lone wolf leadership is just not working. And the issues that we're grappling with now as a society require something different, and there's an urgency. So I think there's, that's part of it, but I also think the other part of it too is you have more and more of us who just said, that's just not working for me. Like I bring a different sensibility as a, let's say as a woman, as a person of color, as a person who's an immigrant, I bring, or they bring a different sensibility and they're wanting leadership to, the idea of leadership to expand. And it's going to have to for us to address these issues. And so as I thought about my own journey and think about the, only, the things that we as queer people brought to the table, everything that we stand for makes sense in terms of transformational leadership. A lot of the way we frame queer leadership development is through the concept of crucible moments. You know, these challenging moments in our lives, whether that is coming out or transition uh, or navigating other difficulties in our lives that are opportunities for growth, but they also can be opportunities to retreat or to hide. You know, that moment where society has told you all along you're one thing and you have to take that deliberate choice as you did to stand apart and say, this is my authenticity that as the path for growth. But there's also the retreat into the closet. And we still have a lot of queer folks in the closet today. How do we frame the conversation and set ideas and things like your book into place where people don't see that as you know, something they have to retreat from, that the value of embracing yourself is so great that it's something to be seized upon? Well, I, I think a couple of things. Number one, um, telling the truth, right? I think people need to understand the truth of who we are. Part of the reason why people are retreating is because there's a, a narrative that's being pushed, not by our community necessarily, but that's being pushed that makes people think that they shouldn't 
um, embrace who they are. I mean, that, and that's by design. So I think presenting the story and continuing to present the story to say, well, this is actually who we are. What I like to say to my students, for example, is that we're not just one story, we're multiple stories. And we have to share the multiple stories of the community to help people see our beauty. I think the other danger is not just people who have not come out, but also there are a number of people who are out who still may harbor internalized homophobia, biphobia, and transphobia. And I think that's just as dangerous in some ways because you have people who, and I've even heard people say this to me when I was conceiving this book, when I was writing this book, well, you're trying to make us out to be saints. Or, you know, um, yeah, we're great, but, you know, we do this thing too. And I say, you know, I'm not suggesting that we're perfect, but I know that we are more perfect than what we've been characterized to be. And let's talk about that. So I think we have to be persistent. I think we have to be, uh, make our efforts visible. I think we have to continue to share multiple stories and not just a single story. So, um, you know, there's a Nigerian poet and I'm going to forget, forget her name right now, but she talks about the fact of, uh, I think it's Chimananda, uh, oh goodness, Ngoza Adichie, I think I got it, who talks about not letting the danger of the single story when we allow one person or one group to have one single identity or narrative. And I think we have to continue to present multiple narratives so that people see that we are multiple things. We're not just one thing. The piece of this that I think is so interesting is that you had essentially a theory about what queer leadership is, how that relates to the values of transformational leadership. And the research that you did clearly bore that out, not in a single story, but in many stories over and over again. So clearly in this process, you you found what you thought that you would find, but I imagine you also found surprises or you discovered new ideas and concepts in the work that you did. So what was it in the experience of writing the book that was most surprising or transformational for you? That's a really good question. I don't think there's, I don't think anyone has asked me that since I've, um, been on tour with the book. Well, I have to admit to you that I stole that from someone who reviewed our book and asked us. <laughs> Got you. What's been transformational for me is, well, let me think about that because I want to give a thoughtful answer and I don't want to just rush. I think what's been transformational is just the affirmation. Everything that came out through the research was something I intuitively thought was there. Now, the goal of research, of course, is to not speculate and just have your hypothesis, but to make sure and to allow your hypothesis to be proven true. If so, it affirmed everything I already knew. And I would even say, for example, talking about sex positivity, um, because, you know, you, I grew up in the Midwest and so I grew up in, in the Midwest, you know, sex is seen as something deviant. You don't talk about, it's just kind of hush, hush, uh, there's a very Victorian norm around sexuality. And what I appreciated in going through the research, doing the lit review, but also talking to people, too, is just recognizing just in the past five years, how much information that we get from our bodies, not from just a sexual nature, but just from an intuitive nature. How much information that we get in terms of our environments, how we're thinking, how we're feeling, um, and how much I and others rely on that information in order to survive, in order to make decisions. And it doesn't get talked about a lot. You know, people will sometimes tell you, um, yeah, you can put all these facts and figures and charts and PowerPoint presentations in front of me, but sometimes there's a decision that you're just making your gut. And 
queer people, I think, are very attuned to the antenna, the sensory, the sensors within our bodies to let us know what's right and what's not right, what's in our best interest, what's not in our best interest. Not just from a sexual standpoint, but from a uh, an intuitive, informative, um, transformational leadership standpoint as well. That was one thing that I was really, I think, it really kind of ch- changed my thinking a little bit as well. Um, so that's the one thing that really stands out uh, among all of the different things is how much information we store at a cellular level and how being present with your body helps to bring some of that information forth that might not necessarily be picked up or um, present for your brain in the conscious mind. Yeah, one of the things in, in our research that we discovered is this amazing ability of queer folks to sense the world around them in a different way and pick up on some of the littlest things and then use that thread that no one else in the room may have noticed to find a way to connect with someone else. And and so there is so much beauty to explore in the way queer folks uh, engage in leadership and connection. I, I agree. I mean, I just want to say, you know, we talk about that in terms of discernment um, and there's a, a negative aspect to it or a negativist aspect of that. But there's also the positive aspect of, you know, where, who's safe, who's part of the community, where can you get information from? There's so much there that we do. And, you know, and historically, that's known as queerdar. But we also know that most of communication is nonverbal. And so there is something to be said for being able to pick up social cues and traits and characteristics that might inform and help you to make better sense of the world and also to take better care of yourself. Right. So, um, lots of little things that intuitively I knew, but hadn't quite reached, you know, the top floor, you know, that being my brain to understand, uh, you know, logically or cognitively. So, um, I'm smiling cause I'm thinking about just going through and talking to people and going through the data on how affirming it was, but also, giving voice to things that I knew internally, but hadn't been able to express or articulate before. That is a perfect lead into my question in in talking about things we think we know. Um, And in another interview, you said, uh, there are a lot of people who write books and by writing a book, they suddenly see themselves as a genius, even if what they write is shit. Uh, And to me, that is funny, it's true, and it hurts a bit as someone who has always thought I'm a, geni- I'm a genius, has written a bunch of shit, uh, has has had a 10th grade Oh, Oh, my 10th grade English teacher told me, you write bullshit, I'm going to teach you how to write good bullshit. So I've been trying to write good shit <laughs> since. I'm sure you have uh, written shit. But in your book, and when you're talking about non-binary thinking, you actually brought up the Dunning-Kruger effect, I think, okay, which is a gotcha. lovely concept that, that I want to explore. And in relation to what people think about LGBTQ leaders or what they think they know about LGBTQ leaders, that comes into effect. So what I want to ask you is, where is it that people's conceptions about LGBTQ leaders are most dangerous in the assumptions they make because they think they know everything about us? Where are they most dangerous? Um, And this may not be the politically popular thing to say. I worry, well, I'm going to speak on it from two different angles. Uh, I think, number one, with neoconservatives, um, I think there is dangerous because most of 
I think, though, I would I would dare say that most of the, our opponents who are out there spreading lies and rumors and, and misinformation about who we are. They know exactly what they're doing. They know that they have a half big story, a half truth or something that's incomplete. What I also worry about, though, and perhaps I worry about more is the unconscious incompetence of progressives, well-meaning allies and liberals who say that, well, I, you know, I, I went to the pride parade. I know what you're about. Um, you know, I remember, for example, being on a flight. I was going to the gay games in Chicago in 2006. And I remember sitting next to this man and he says, so where are you going? What are you, where are you flying to Chicago for? And I said, I'm going to the gay games. And he asked me what it was. And I explained, and he says, Oh, you're going to party. He's like, that sounds really cool. So you're going to party. And I said, no, I'm not going to party. He said, well, isn't that what you all do? You just love to party. And that kind of demonstrates, right, the danger is when people get so familiar with you or they think they're familiar with you that they stop doing research. They stop questioning their norms. Um, I often say knowing people sometimes gets in the way of knowing people. Like you can kind of just write off someone and say, oh, I know this person, like in a family member. I know you without actually knowing what they stand for, what they're about and what's led them to get to where they are in life. And I would say that there are a number of well-meaning allies um, also who I think could use a, a course on LGBTQ, a primer on LGBTQ inclusion, LGBTQ history, and also LGBTQ culture, because they're operating from a very dangerous standpoint of knowing just a little bit to be able to sound intelligent. But what they're doing is helping to perpetuate stereotypes and myths about us that are also dangerous as well. That's what I would do the work. And I would say being in places like the Bay Area in New York, that's where I see it quite a bit is where people are like, oh, I, honey, I know you. I, I have a, you know, a lesbian sister. My next door neighbor is, is trans. I get it. And you're like, no, you don't get it. <laughs> so um, there's always something more to learn. And I always, just as a person who works in uh, global inclusion, I never want to get to the place where I say that I know all I need to know about a community, even if it's my own. There's still things that I, I can discover around uh, being black, being African-American, and there certainly are things I can learn about being queer. And I don't want to call them the babies because that might be seen as offensive. The younger generations are teaching me every single step of the way, and I welcome it. Yeah, I think that's so interesting how even those who have maybe a positive perception or would consider themselves allies, the the qualities that they might perceive as being positive that that we gain something from that we think are valuable you know fun and fabulous and and even though they're they're said with a, a sort of a positive intention and they're well meaning it it really lacks a substance and so I think that's a place where where our work certainly overlaps with yours and that we're interested in exploring what are those specific qualities and values that are substantive in a meaningful way, particularly in a way that is relevant for what we need now, right? And you touched a little bit about the things going on in the world and why this brand of leadership in particular is so incredibly well-suited. I, I used to hear it a lot, and I still do, in terms of DEIB initiatives. So I'll talk to a CEO, and they'll say, you know, we need to, um, we need to attract um, LGBTQ people. And I'll say, why? And then there's this blank stare. And they'll say, well, it's, you know, they're well-meaning people. And they'll say, well, it's just the right thing to do. And I'll say, I agree. But why is it the right thing to do? And there's nothing else that they say. And I had that experience in doing a lot of work for the military. 
and also for different businesses and just saying, if that's the best you can do, no wonder we're not getting any further than where we are because you're not able to tie to the business case. Although, of course, I don't want to limit this to business. You don't see our value. It's a numbers game. It's a political game. It's it's like a popularity contest, but you're not really drawing the connection to say that we bring something valuable. If it, it's not just a tangible um you know, educational or, or um, pedigree or acumen that we have, but there's something inherent to who we are that also enriches communities, helps um, organizations, and that's very dangerous. And so that's a lot of where my thinking around that came from is because I would come and talk to, again, CEOs, people in the C-suite, well-meaning people time and time again, and they couldn't make the connection. And it was, I remember, and I think I may have said this in the book, working with someone where, we were doing or talking about LGBT, you know, LGBTQ community and my practitioner, fellow practitioners looked at me and said, well, I don't actually understand what the business case for this is. So could you just handle this section? And I'll just kind of uh, play base, but I don't really make the connection. And I thought, here's a person who's supposed to be working on behalf of diversity, equity and inclusion. And if they don't understand it, then how can we expect our clients to understand it? For us as both members of the military community to talk about inclusion as a national security imperative, I mean, it becomes this thing where we do get those same stares of, huh, what? Uh, and to do that work to explain why it's so important to bring in those different perspectives that enable decision making from different ways that really enhances mission success. You know, it it's eye opening to a lot of people, but it's sad to how many people it's eye-opening when we do that. It is. And you know what I would say though, to when I I've, I've had those thoughts and I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, black people have been in this country for 500 years and we're still misunderstood. And so there's also the other side of me that just realized this is part of why we have work. I'd, I'd rather, I'd be okay with doing different work, but this is why we have this work, right. To continue to educate, to, uh, reframe and to um, help people to see us. And I suspect we'll be doing this in gen- future generations will be doing this far beyond 2023. So in those examples where you've uh, seen the gaps in even well-intentioned individuals' knowledge and understanding, what are some of the stories or exemplars that you've been able to utilize that have that have actually helped, that you've actually been able to make some progress and, and move people's thinking forward by sharing these ideas? I would say a lot of that has come very recently. Um, there was a period where, for example, uh, there are a number of companies that were doing career acceleration leadership institutes, and they were targeted for or focused on women or those who identify as women. And then they were also focused on people of color. And I remember going into those and saying, why don't you have anything for the LGBTQ community? And I would hear from clients over and over again, oh, we don't need that. And, you know, that's, this is enough. And, and there was always this unspoken idea that we were, you know, our community was just not up to par or that wasn't as important, that it was somehow secondary. So I would say to you, and not to be pessimistic, I do see more organizations doing work around LGBTQ inclusion. What I would love to see more of them doing is putting the time, money, and resources towards coaching and supporting LGBTQ leaders and making sure that those quote-unquote high potentials have the support they need because the journey is different, the struggles are different, but the, the payout is different and in many cases greater, right? So 
I would say to you, we're still, I, I still don't quite see enough companies getting it. You have tons of ERGs, you have tons of guest speakers, but I still think that this question of why and how LGBTQ people should be integrated more into positions of leadership, why there should be more recruitment, why there should be more visibility, why there should be more integration throughout all the industries, military included, I still think is something, a case that needs to be made. And I would have thought in 2023, we'd be a lot further. And I still think we're kind of at an elementary level. So to help move past that elementary level a little bit, what is it that leaders in organizations, companies, universities, wherever people are, can do to open the door to those LGBTQ leaders that are out there? What, what should they absorb from reading your work and know and understand so that they can enable the success of that next generation of LGBTQ leaders? Well, I think the first thing is, you know, the, the phrase I coined in the book is recognizing our cultural genius. You know, you can't learn about something if you think you already know all there is to know. And so what I would love to see a lot of organizations adopt is a sense of cultural humility. Yeah, we're, you, you've done a lot for pride. We're your colorful neighbors. You think we're cool and all that. But do you really understand what we're about? And I think that's where I'd like to see more efforts spent on just education. Given the way things are going in our schools, uh, there's not enough time spent on educating students, young people, and just people in general about the different communities that make up our neighborhoods and our cities and our country and the world. So I would like people just to do some basic education, not the necessarily the uh, queer one-on-one in terms of defining terms, but understanding more of the cultural genius that we bring forward. I think making sure that they remove barriers for those who are currently in positions of leadership, but also giving more license to people to lead in the way that is particular and is consistent with queer leadership. We don't, and I don't, I should say, want uh, queer leaders to be modeling norms and values and behaviors that they don't particularly embody and they don't particularly espouse. Um, that doesn't serve us anybody, and that doesn't help us move forward. If you're having people who are um, closeted, who are um, hamstrung and don't have the power or the ability to be their full selves, because I think what you're basically saying is the way to succeed is not to be yourself. So we need to have more examples of people who are actually embodying a unique, authentic type of leadership where they can be, bring their best self and they can also bring their queer self and show how that's impacting the organization. What I always, uh, av- uh, I should say, advocate for in terms of ERGs is don't just have them as social groups. Have them, you know, give ERGs, for example, a particular issue or problem that the organization is facing. Have them study it. Have them come back with a recommendation. Maybe one of the ERGs has identified a way to help people to give better feedback. Have the ERG then or have that cadre or that group teach that back to the entire organization. That's a way of helping people to see the mass appeal of queer leadership and queer brilliance, not just have it contained within the ERG, but to have it elevated and have it broadcast on a much broader scale. So I would say do the education and learn and realize that the education is going to be a, a, a lifelong process. Remove the barriers who are, that are there for those who are currently in positions of um, who are LGBTQ and are wanting to move up. Create the psychological safety. Make sure that DEIB is part of your core pillars. But then also make sure that you're creating a way for people to lead 
in a way that is authentic to their cultural background. There's an opportunity. We've heard things around feminine leadership. We're hearing things around BIPOC leadership. We need to also make space for queer leadership and know that it has a place. This is not just a novelty. It's not just a feel-good measure. This is something that can help businesses and organizations and communities grow and achieve their mission. Well, we so wholeheartedly agree with that. And of course, the element of education and helping people understand and see the value and then be able to utilize that value, right? There is a business case. We're not having to make this up. There is a business case if you understand how to leverage and utilize that value to make improvements in your organization, to move everyone forward. Um, And I really appreciated that the subtitle of your book is how understanding LGBTQ cultural values can transform your leadership practice. And another piece that you talked about in terms of what everyone can get from this is to teach every leader how to begin the journey of personal growth, right? So so not just LGBTQ leaders, but all of us. What is it that we can learn from these folks that helps all of us enter into that journey that is sometimes so difficult to do? Mm -hmm. That's a really great question. What I would say is, you know, when you want to be a, a good leader, when you t- I talk to leaders, and I'm sure you all do too, and the first thing they say is, I want to help, reach, touch, impact, influence, connect with that person. And I'm like, that is great. But have you done the same amount of work, if not more work, to understand, connect, influence, and really be with yourself? Because if you're not with yourself, you're not going to be able to be with anybody else. At some point, you will be ineffective. People will see you as you will. You won't have the same cachet because you will not be connected to your values. You'll be seen as kind of an empty suit. You don't really have a core or a foundation to stand on. That process of looking internally is one that we emulate all the time. It's called the coming out process, whatever that process is for all of us, where you have to look peer within the quote unquote dark abyss to say, who am I? And that's a scary thing to do. And yet our community does it every single day. Anytime a new person comes out and says, hey, I'm I'm here, I'm queer, get used to it. What they basically said is they've begun, initiated, and I don't want to say completed, but they've embraced this process of looking at themselves and say, I need to be clear on who I am if I'm going to be in community with other people. That's the best way to be a leader. You have to have an inside out approach as opposed to an outside in approach. Once you know yourself, once you know your values, once you know your strengths, your weaknesses, your developmental opportunities, then you're in a better position to lead others because you've gone through the same process. And you also know what's going to what is going to help you to be your best and also areas that you need to work on. If we want people to be leaders, leaders have to model that vulnerability. They have to model their courage. They have to model that level of discernment and that curiosity. And our community does that by virtue of the the coming out process. We have to be curious about ourselves. We have to be discerning to know what's us or what is ours and what is society's. We have to have that clarification to know that who we are is this or has these types of components and also the strength to say who I am is okay. That's the foundation for you then to be able to build relationships with other people. People want someone who is authentic and someone who's real and someone who's done their own work. If they haven't, then they will have no compass for you to follow. And we've seen that 
tragically and unfortunately play out time and time again. And most recently within U.S. history, when people are not clear about who they are and they're trying to lead other people. I think our community does a brilliant job of modeling that every single day. Liz said it once already. We couldn't agree more. It is so awesome to talk to someone who has also studied queer leadership and what it looks like and, and why it's so meaningful. And normally when we close our interviews, we ask our guests, you know, why did you want to be a part of this? Why did you want to come and talk about queer leadership with us? I think in your case, that's not an appropriate question. You are clearly an, an expert in queer leadership. Uh, we absolutely encourage people to go out and buy your book, The Souls of Queer Folk, and read it through. But I want to close with one more quote from it and then ask you a question on top of this. You said that given the depth, magnitude, and breadth of the challenges we face as a society in the 21st century, we as a species cannot afford to leave any wisdom on the table, even if it comes from a community that is still irrationally discriminated against and massively misunderstood. Now, there are a lot of communities out there that are discriminated against and misunderstood, and they all have wisdom to share with us uh, as a nation, uh, as individuals. There's so much we can continue learning. What is the one takeaway you would want to get people uh, to buy into about the wisdom of the queer community? What is it that makes us so special and that we can hope to see even more of in our future? You all ask great questions, by the way. Um, our wisdom, our cultural genius is informed by every other community, but it has the liberatory aspect that queerness naturally has anytime it says to people, it's okay for you to be different. We are informed by the wisdom of women. We are informed by the, the wisdom of immigrant communities. We inf are informed by people from different faith traditions. We are informed by people who come from different racial and um, generational backgrounds. We are informed by everyone on this planet. And we have the tradition, the additional, excuse me, wisdom and brilliance of sexuality and gender nonconformity to help people to really take root and to really unleash this power, this magic everywhere. That to me is what's the beauty of our community. If, you know, when we talk about the queer community, we exist all over the globe. We have partaken in every single um, part of our society. So as an emerging community, and saying emerging seems kind of odd since we've been here, but as a community that's now been given its due in some respects, I think people would be... Um, it would be a great disservice not to honor this community and to take into account the collective wisdom that our community has and to see how it's been repackaged as something that helps people to be more free and more emancipated. So this is what I think we bring to the table. I, I hope you, you were going to ask the question. I will answer it. Why did I write this book to for that little boy um, on the north side of Milwaukee who didn't have this book? That was me. And for the, the millions of other queer kids around the world who just need someone to say to them, it's okay to be me and I deserve to have a place in this world. That's why this book is important. Joel, thank you so much for joining, sharing some of your wisdom, the collective wisdom of queer folks. And we hope to together continue exploring all the amazing things that queer leaders bring to our society. Thank you both for what you're doing and for your work. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, I look forward to us all continuing to do the, the good work. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. 
Forged in Fire is hosted by Brie Fram and Liz Cavallero. Produced and engineered by Frida Castellanos and Christina George. Guest management by Trey Wirth and original music by Bridget Benemark. The views and ideas expressed by the hosts and guests of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the organizations or institutions they represent. To learn more about Forged in Fire, please visit us at forgedinfire.org. Thank you.